Mixed opinion, that's okay. We are uh, turning in our Bibles again to uh, John chapter 4, and if I'm honest, we, we've been on a, an interesting journey in the past few weeks, and this morning as we approach the Word of God, it's, it's a slightly unusual one, uh, just as we're kind of arriving in this, kind of in the middle, I think, of where God is, is leading us, um, and I hope this is going to help us to explain and to transition into what God is leading us into. We're in these moments each week where we kind of come towards the end of worship, and if I'm honest, we're in those places where we're never really very sure, do we pause here? Do we, do we keep going? Do we, do we step into the Word? And, and God is moving amongst us, and it's exciting times. And uh, we just want to position our hearts correctly in that in order to step all into all that He has for us, and I think that's perhaps part of what He wishes to speak to us about today. So if you have your Bible, we're going to turn to John 4, and we're going to read together the first few verses. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not the Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. We've been spending time together, as we've just said, in these verses for a couple of weeks now is God has been journeying us through this amazing moment where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well in the sixth hour of the day. And before we push on into the text, which we're going to do a little bit today, we focus on something quite important, and that is the way that Jesus arrives at the well. Verse 6 specifically tells us that Jesus is tired from the journey that he's just made. And while that doesn't seem like a big point to make, it actually is. Because here we are presented with the humanity of Jesus. Jesus has made a journey from the Judean countryside to Sychar and in a day and age in which such journeys were made by foot. Jesus, like most of us who have just made a journey spanning multiple days, Jesus is tired and he sits down because he needs a rest. And here is a stunning picture of the humanity of Christ. Because this Jesus that sits down at the side of the well, this is the Jesus who heals the sick. This is the Jesus who makes the blind see and the deaf hear. This is the Jesus who strengthens feeble frames and even brings the dead back to life again. And here God in the flesh making his dwelling amongst us. Here Jesus, the all-powerful one who gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Jesus has sore feet. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's in a position where he has to take a moment to take the weight off his feet. And what we read in this throwaway statement that's intended really just to set the scene for us, what we read is Jesus feeling the weakness of his human frame. This really simple comment from John just tucked away within the wider storyline it actually proves a core tenet of our theology. 
It proves a fundamental doctrine that we believe about Jesus, that if it wasn't true, this whole thing wouldn't work. And that is that Jesus was fully God, but also was fully human too. And we see both of these in this moment in John 4. Jesus walking the pages of the Gospels was fully God and his divine knowledge that he's about to show in his conversation with a Samaritan woman proves that, as does his profound invitation and offer of receiving living water. That statement that he's about to make further down in the passage is a metaphor that prophetically calls out the nature and status that he possesses as God and it reveals his intentions for the human race which is to satisfy the longing and the thirst in the human soul. And so when we see that, we see and also easily recognize the components in John 4 that present to us his unquestionable and outstanding divinity. But we also see in his weariness, in his tired frame with his sore feet and his need to take a break and take the load off of his feet, we see that not only was he fully God, but he was fully man, fully human too. He lived the human life the way that we do. He felt and experienced life the way that we feel experienced life. He felt the effects of a three-day journey the same way that any of us would if we had walked for three days straight. Here in this moment in John chapter 4, we see a brilliant enactment of the scripture that is found in Hebrews 4 where it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he didn't sin. Now, We don't see Jesus being tempted in this moment in John 4. But what we do see is him experiencing weakness and weariness and tiredness. We see Jesus then presented in this passage as one who is able to empathize and sympathize with our human weaknesses because he lived as we live and he experienced what we experience. He lived within the frailty of a human frame. He journeyed the journey of a human life with its physical human limitations and frustrations. But not only do we see in John 4 his identification with human weakness, as Hebrews 4.15 calls out, but actually we also see the empathy of Christ. Because Jesus is presented to us as arriving at the well, tired and exhausted from the journey. The disciples have been sent into town for food supplies, so he's on his own, and he's thirsty due to the heat of the high sun. We know that because the first thing he says to the woman when she arrives at the well is, can I get a drink from your cup? These details put together show as Jesus arriving at the well the same way the nameless woman arrives at the well in the sixth hour of the day. We find him at the well weary, thirsty, and alone. And this woman whose name we do not know, she walks into the pages of Scripture, she walks into the story of Jesus, and she enters the same scene, journeying at the time of the high sun, carrying her water jar. She journeys at the time when the other women in the community are resting from the sun, are taking a break from manual work, but this is the time that she engages in her work. She picks up and carries her jar from her house through the heat to the nearby well, and due to the timing of her travel, she journeys alone. She arrives at the well alone. Making such a journey in the intensity of the heat whilst carrying a water jar would have, I would imagine, have been difficult and tiring. And if it was me, 
Journeying through the heat, engaging in such manual activity, and clearly I am well-versed in manual activity. Note. If it was me, then I know that arriving at the well, I would have arrived thirsty. And certainly her journey is all because of a need for water, so thirst is implied here, whether that is generally or specifically. Jesus arrived at the well weary, thirsty, and alone, and so did she. It's really simple information, but it's powerful, and it's moving, particularly as we've been saying over the past couple of weeks, particularly because Jesus set this whole moment up. He orchestrated the scene with its conditions and the timing and the environment. This then is a stunning image of our Jesus. There is something powerful that we see here about the fact that Jesus arrives in this moment the same way that this woman does. And what this teaches us is that as we journey through life with its twists and with its turns, with its many dips and curves, as we face trials and difficulties and hard times, Jesus is one who is able to identify with our struggles because he lived as we live and he endured the weakness and frailty of the human frame living within a fallen world and a fallen culture. And he inserts himself into our journeys. He positions himself within our moments of trial and difficulty, our times of fights and struggles and our wrestling with uncertainty and worry. He is present with us. He's present in our trials and tribulations alongside us, feeling in his heart what we carry in ours, empathizing with our pain, sympathizing with our sorrow. But yet in his identification, he does more than just stand in solidarity with us. He does more than just look on and say, I see what you're going through and I get it. I understand. He does more than just set himself up at this well for this woman and say, I've arrived the same way as you have, I get it. He does more than just identify with us and stand in solidarity. He exists within those moments, holding the power to change the narrative and rewrite the story. And that's what he did for this woman. He inserts himself into that moment, arriving the same way as she does. But he exists in that moment, holding the power to rewrite her narrative and completely change her story. And the way that he does it is interesting. Jesus doesn't change the conditions here. He he doesn't manifest a cloud to cover the sun or a breeze to cool everyone down or even better, he doesn't manifest air conditioning to bring the temperature down. If she's tired and weary arriving at the well, he doesn't zap her with renewed strength and vitality. He doesn't manifest friends for her so that she's not on her own or or even change her her status and give her honor so that her reputation is changed. No, Jesus doesn't alter the external conditions for this woman. But what he does do is interact with and transform the internal conditions of her soul. And as he does, he rewrites her story and he completely transforms the narrative of her life. In fact, you could almost say that in interacting and changing the internal conditions of her life, he in actual fact in turn did indeed transform the external conditions in her life. And perhaps there's something quite profound for us to understand about God here. The more that we look at this moment in John 4, the more we begin to see the wider dynamic that is at play and just how vast and how prophetic a picture of God that is presented to us. Because Jesus turns up and He sets himself up at a well to interact with a woman living a broken and sinful life and whose culture is described as alien to his. 
That right there is the description of the story of God and the story of salvation. God comes down to humanity, inserts himself into our world, taking on flesh, and he does so to rescue us from the brokenness of our humanity and to bring us from a place of living in ignorance of him to living within the boundaries of his amazing and inclusive heart. This is a description of faith, of salvation. The problem is that in some senses, the culture of faith that we have developed in our 21st century the culture of faith that we have developed still carries a bit of a consumer and hedonistic aspect to it where we want the supernatural manifestations of God, but we don't want to do the hard graft. We want the manifestations of God to do the hard graft for us. That is, we want the supernatural influences that change external stuff, that change the storms and the hardship and the sickness and the difficulty and the pain and the worry. We want Him to change things to make it easier for us. We want Him to change the external conditions around us, but not necessarily to touch and change the internal conditions of who we are. And the thing is that while God can and does move in powerful, supernatural, and gracious ways within our circumstances, within our worlds, He rarely transforms the external conditions around us without shaping the internal culture and condition of the soul in the process too. In fact, we might even say that the key to seeing the narrative change and the story of our life rewritten is actually when God gets to work inside us. It's when we allow him to transform who we are and the conditions of our soul and the aspects of our character and our nature and our spirituality. That's when we begin to see the power of God out working in the everyday environment too. And that's what we see with this woman at the well. If She's coming at this time to avoid the other women in the community. Well, we see the complete opposite of that at the end of the passage. When she runs and she tells people, come and see the man who told me everything I, I did. Could this be the Messiah? If she's coming at this time because she's alone, she interacts with Jesus. He rewrites the story. He transforms the narrative. And at the end, she's no longer hiding from people, but she's running into the proximity of people. This woman's external conditions have been changed, but the reason for that is because Jesus has interacted with her soul, with her worldview, with her spirituality, with her personal journey, even with her sin, perhaps. And we very much see this from the positioning of Jesus within this interaction. He turns up and he sits down at the well and asks the woman struggling towards the well for a drink. He, he puts himself in the woman's world. You see, Jesus isn't one who is looking on on us from a different perspective. He isn't peering down from his realm on all that is taking place around us. He doesn't stand aloof from our trials and tribulations, distant from them from his holy height. He's not there in heaven with his magic wand waiting for us to shout and holler, and then maybe he'll move his hand and remove our problems. Rather, it would seem that Jesus' modus operandi is to turn up within the situations of life and unleash who he is within those situations through the dialogue of the soul. It's not so much that he looks down from on high as a distant deity who will occasionally move heaven to transform earth. Rather, he is one who he says will never leave us nor forsake us. Lo, he is with us even until the ends of the age, which means he is there with us. In fact, he is here with us. He is present with us. He is positioned with us even right now. And the key that unlocks the difference that his presence brings is when we dialogue with him in the trial and the tribulation, 
It's when we explore his presence in the storm. It's when we converse with his heart as we're journeying through the valleys with their shadows. Change didn't happen for this woman in John 4 when she bumped into Jesus and discovered his presence at the well. Change happened when she engaged with Jesus and dialogued with the one whose presence she found at the side of the well. Folks, Jesus is here right now. He's powerfully present in this room right now at this moment. And the difference between a sudden chance encounter with God where we come and we ask him and he fills the room and then we go away again, the difference between a sudden chance encounter with God and lasting change within a life is when we open up the soul to dialogue with the one who presences himself with us. See, every week we can do this quite easily. Every week we can come and we can invite him to move amongst us and he'll come and he'll move amongst us. Every week we can come and bump into Jesus at the side of this well that we gather around. But the difference between being in his presence and carrying his presence is when we open up our souls and let him get to work in the internal culture of our heart. And I think this is something that's quite important for us to grasp. Because each week it seems that we step with further intensity into his presence so he calls to us today to steward that and he reveals to us how we can continue to do that. It's when we come each week not with a heart of just bumping into him at the side of the well, but when we come and we dialogue with him and open up the internal culture of who we are. So how do we do that? Where do we begin? Well, it's quite easy. We don't, we let him do it. <laughs> Jesus opened the conversation with the Samaritan woman. He started the chat. Well, will you give me a drink? He says to her. And straight away, she launches into the rhetoric that is attached to her rule book, which is what we looked at last week. And Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. In fact, Jesus, in a kind of backward way, offers to her living water. He's using this spiritual prophetic metaphor and not surprisingly, the woman doesn't get it. She says, you get none to draw with, the well is deep. How are you going to get this water? Now, to be fair to the woman, the Greek word that's used here for living water, it actually means flowing water. So she can be forgiven for not quite grasping what's going on. This woman approaches a stagnant source, a stagnant well, and Jesus offers her a drink from a flowing source. The dialogue doesn't really match the setting. You see, this is what Jesus does. What, what he brings to a situation is always greater than what the situation can offer, Amen. The conditions he manifests always exceed, in fact, supersede the existing conditions. That's what he does. He sits down at a well and he offers rivers of living water. He turns up at a funeral and interrupts it by announcing life. He walks through a storm and releases peace. He marches into a temple and disturbs the peace. He dies on a cross. He enters into the realm of death. He allows death to take hold of him. And then he rises from the dead and defeats death forever. The conditions that he manifests always exceed and supersede the existing conditions. What he brings to a situation is always greater than what the situation can offer. So when we find the presence of Jesus within a situation, we find the source of the greater within the situation. He never brings lesser, he always brings greater. And that preaches really well. But here's the catch. He rarely brings the greater with a bang and a wallop. 
He often reveals his heart first. And then there can come the supernatural bang and wallop stuff. But he reveals heart first. And often it's as much the heart of those within the situation that he reveals as it is the heart of God. Think about this. He, he could easily have displayed his glory here at the side of the well. In fact, he could have had rivers of living water flooding the ground round about him as he was speaking. That would be the coolest sermon illustration ever. That would leave her in no doubt that he was indeed the Messiah. That as he says, if you asked me, then streams of living water would flow from within. And as he said streams of living water, suddenly water starts bubbling up all around him like a scene out of a Marvel movie. That would have been amazing. He didn't do that. Angels attended him in Gethsemane. I'm sure they could have attended him in Sychar and they wouldn't have needed a drink. In fact, she could have approached the well and found Jesus and some angels there and that would have knocked her off of her feet. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus' approach is to begin a journey with this woman that isn't about manifestation but is about revelation. It isn't so much about external transformation, it's about internal transformation. And there's so much revelation within this moment, it's hard to know where to start, but we've got to start somewhere. Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring of water welling up to living life. Jesus makes a big announcement here, and there's big revelation in this statement about Jesus and what he's offering. Living water flowing within that. The heart of the individual being quenched, the thirst of life being quenched, the life of God flowing from within an individual. This is huge language, and we with our Western Christian understanding and with our New Testament knowledge, we grasp what Jesus is saying. We see and recognize the prophetic language. We understand what he's speaking, but, but this woman doesn't. And Jesus, in his patience, he unpacks it with her. But he takes her on a journey to get there. He deepens her understanding. He opens up her eyes. He lets her see. He awakens her to knowledge and clarity. He releases the life that he's talking about inside of her. And we see that he's releasing that life within her because as soon as he's spoken and had the dialogue, she drops her water jar and she goes to tell the whole town about Jesus. She receives that loving water. She, she receives that quenching, refreshing. Something is awakened within her and that river begins to flow out of her. And as that life is awakened within her, we see it being released through her because we're told that many Samaritans came to faith because of her testimony. Jesus announces what he's going to do. Rivers of living water are going to spring up and we see that when we come to the end of the dialogue that that does indeed happen. But what Jesus does then is he announces the end result at the beginning of the chat. But he does more than just announce the end result. He actually walks her into it. And here then is a prophetic masterclass from Jesus. Now, I know at times I can be quite flippant from the pulpit about prophetic stuff. And that's more about trying to undo a healthy, an unhealthy culture that exists within our city and at times even within our church culture and minds. But please hear that at my heart is a deep love for the prophetic and is a real desire for church and ministry to have a prophetic edge. But I guess... A real issue that I have with some prophetic ministries that aren't rooted within kingdom is that often it's just hot air. As in it's just announcements and pronouncements. 
and announcements and pronouncements that perhaps reveal very real kingdom agenda and bring godly spiritual insight into the conclusion that God has in store. But the problem is it's often just announcements and pronouncements, decrees and declarations that carry and show no effort or desire to journey into what has been revealed. It's just about bringing the revelation. It's just about making the declaration but not necessarily about journeying into what has been revealed and announced. More often than not, when God speaks prophetically to reveal his agenda and his direction, as he unwraps a layer of his heart to us, it normally always involves a peeling back of a layer from ours. When God brings heart revelation to us, it normally always involves heart renovation amongst his people and within the culture of his people. He shows us his heart, but then what he does is he begins a journey and a process of molding us into the shape of his heart that he has just revealed to us. So we've got to be careful and weary of prophetic activity that always reveals heart, but isn't willing to journey into the shape of the heart that has been revealed. Manifestation that doesn't involve molding, revelation that doesn't involve renovation, prophetic announcements that don't include process and journey and pressing in to become what God has uttered. Such prophetic acts are out of sync with the kingdom of God and the heart of God. They're out of sync with the alignment of His purposes. And while they can and often do bring very accurate insight, but without balance, it actually becomes dangerous and harmful. Jesus at the side of this well speaks to a broken woman. And I think it's amazing that he doesn't speak to a powerful leader. He doesn't speak to an official or ruler within the town because that would have brought a big impact in the town. No, he, he brings a change or a conversation to a broken woman and he speaks boldly and powerfully about what he's going to do. And the declaration does come with a now and next and a not yet outworking. It has an application in the now moment. It's an application in the life of this woman at that exact moment whom he meets at the well. But it also has an outworking in the lives of those who have yet to come to faith in this woman's town, but will do because of what he is now speaking to her. So while it has a now application, it also has an application for the next. And the truth is, you and I are living here today in the application and outworking of the revelation that was given to this woman's heart. So we can see here yet again another theme that God has been speaking to us about, which is about facilitating his ministry to the now, the next, and the not yet generations. And when we bring that into the prophetic that is given to us here, what we receive here is some really clear, helpful framework. When we receive prophetic insight and purpose from God, we have to be aware and conscious that while there is truth for our current context and an experience of its truth to be explored within our now moment, there will always be dimensions of what he gives to us that we won't always get and we might never fully see. And that means that we've got to be cautious about putting things squarely in a box and saying, this is the meaning and the outwork and the application of what God is saying and nothing else. We've got to be careful of that. Because he reveals for the now, but also for the next and the not yet. So what do we do with Revelation then? Well, the first thing that we have to do and we have to commit to is to renovate the heart so that we can be couriers and carriers of what he has just purposed and revealed. And this is the immediate journey that Jesus took this woman on. He makes an announcement of his intention. 
Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. It will spring up uh, to eternal life. And in response, the woman says to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty again and have to keep coming here. Her response, while still not quite grasping what Jesus is saying, her response shows an appetite and a hunger to explore his intentions and to explore what he's offering. She's hungry for what Jesus is going to do, or perhaps it'd be better to say she was thirsty. The appetite of the soul, while she still doesn't quite grasp what is happening, the appetite is the doorway for Jesus to do more. And the first thing that he begins in doing is dealing with her own heart. Now, he could have immediately launched into his chat about the difference between Jews and Samaritans. He could have immediately given his mini-sermon on genuine worship. He could have went straight to the punchline and delivered the revelation that he sat down at the well to deliver. I'm the Messiah, now go and get your friends from town and bring them back here to meet me. But he didn't do any of that. The first thing that he did was he held a mirror up. And he says to her, go call your husband and come back. This is really unusual given what has been said up until now. Because suddenly Jesus' conversation steers from the broad general spiritual picture, from the grand prophetic agenda for that moment, the big picture revelation. He steers from the big spiritual picture to the small personal picture. He steps into, he navigates into her personal life. He's just delivered the revelation of his heart and what is within it, his desires to release living water to this woman, to gift to her a profound understanding of God that is now hers to share. This is going to be her ministry. Nobody else saw this. Nobody else heard this. This is her purpose, is to share this unique revelation that Christ has given just to her. However, before she's released into what will be her ministry and her gifting and her purpose, there's some work that has to be done first. Jesus reveals his heart and the contents within it to her. But before that can land fully and purposefully, he has to hold up a mirror to her heart and show her the contents of her own soul. He moves from the spiritual to the personal. Go back, call your husband. I've got no husband. You're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five fellas, and the man that you're with right now isn't your fella. What you said is true. Who are misses? From this information, we draw the conclusion that this is a woman of loose morals. Certainly between this information, the fact that she's coming at this time to draw water from the well causes us to do our own little Miss Marple effort. And we come to the conclusion that she's led a colorful life. But do you know, the truth is, reading this at face value, we don't know why our marriage has failed. Perhaps she had affairs. Perhaps she was cheated on. Perhaps she was widowed. We don't actually know the journey that she's been on. We just know that she's had a journey. The information presented to us about this woman would not be without consequence. She can't journey through five failed or terminated marriages and relationships and not feel the pain and the heartache of that. She's lived with the grief of losing love. She's lived with rejection. 
She's journeyed through life events that will have impacted her view of her self-worth and her self-value, perhaps even made her ask questions about herself and who she is and the way that she is. And while we don't know what went on and we can guess a bit from the fact that the fella she has right now isn't her husband and that does speak quite a lot to us, but while we don't know fully what has went on, what we do know is that as she journeys to the well feeling the weight of her water jar and the weariness caused by the heat of the sun, she would also have journeyed feeling the weight of her soul and the weariness of carrying such pain and trauma and guilt. If she journeys at this time to avoid the looks and the comments of other women who would normally come at the start of the day for this water collecting process, then every day as she struggles through the heat, coming at a time when she'll be alone, every day as she struggles, she would be reminded of why she has to come at this time and why she is distinct from the rest and why she is struggling the way that she's struggling. And as she struggled through, she would have always been reminded of the choices and the mistakes and the experiences that she has made and the experiences that she has had and with just one question. Jesus brings all of that stuff that she's been through, all of that stuff that she's carrying, he brings it all out into the open. And you know what? The response of the woman is incredible. As we read it, it's almost as though she just doesn't bat an eyelid. He calls out her five-husband track record and her current living and sin status And in response, she just carries on with the conversation. She doesn't have an emotional breakdown. Doesn't say anything about her being gripped with embarrassment or guilt or shame. She doesn't go off on one and start swearing and cursing at Jesus and telling him to do one and mind his own business. Nor does she try and reason out the behavior. I bet you don't understand what I've been through. She doesn't try and reason out the behavior or explain the reasons for why her journey has been the way that it has. She just continues on with the conversation. Now, there is no doubt that she would have had some kind of reaction. But the fact that it's not recorded for us suggests to us that Jesus' divine knowledge and insight, his calling out of what was within, it didn't jar her. It didn't make her feel distressed. Which must mean that there must have been something in Jesus' tone and in Jesus' presence that made her soul feel at ease. Even when the mirror was being held up and the contents of her life were being laid out bare. And that's because Jesus is someone with whom it is safe to be completely open and honest and real and vulnerable. God is one that sees the heart. Scripture says he looks at the heart, not the outward appearance. And one of my favorite scriptures about that is Jeremiah 17 where it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a person according to their conduct. God sees the parts of us that no one else does, the secret parts that store up our thoughts and our attitudes and our motives and our desires. He sees those bits. There is nothing about us that God doesn't know or hasn't already seen. And if he knows and sees everything about us, if he knows and sees the contents of our hearts, then there is nobody safer for us to be open, vulnerable, and honest with than him. Nothing comes as a shock to him. Nothing comes as a surprise to him. Nothing can be hidden from him. So we can be completely real and honest and vulnerable in his presence and know that we are 
safe. Because he already knows it anyway. See, with God, there is safety and vulnerability. And that is particularly seen when Jesus exposes this woman's heart and journey. But he does so in a way that is respectful to her. There's no crowd. He sent the disciples away for food. He's cleared the scene and he's made it a safe environment for a dialogue with the contents of her soul. He doesn't display his divine knowledge before a multitude of people to show off what he knows and so that everyone will know that he's great. He speaks purposefully, intentionally, and powerfully into this woman's being. But he does so privately. He does it in a way that is respectful to who she is and that protects her dignity. And he often behaves that way. Beat with an angry mob looking to murder the local adulterer or the accusatory tone of a pious dinner party when a woman with a sinful life arrives at his feet. The same thing happens. He clears the scene. He addresses the woman caught in adultery. He silences the comments around the dinner table towards the woman with the sinful reputation. He upholds dignity and creates safe spaces for lives to be transformed in his presence. See, his presence is a safe space. And we have to ensure then that when we create spaces for his presence, that our practices and procedures our approaches and behavior within ministry reflect the safety of who he is and always place the dignity of the individual and a respect for the individual in a place of priority. Because to do that is to minister like he does. And sadly, recent press would highlight for us the importance to ensure that in churches we are creating safe spaces for lives to be transformed by the presence of God. Jesus asks a question. He responds to the woman with a sentence that unearths her whole life story. He calls out her life story in order to change her life story. In other words, this woman has to come to terms with where she's been before Jesus can show her where she's going. He had to confront her lifestyle before he could transform her style of living. We're coming into close. You know, sometimes God has to hold up the mirror to our souls and confront us with our own reflection in order to release us to carry His. There are times in the ministry process of God when we have to see who we are and what we've become before we can truly embrace who it is that He is calling us to be. And that process is far from comfortable. At times it can be painful. God brings us to the place where the rose-tinted glasses have to come off because we have to come to terms with where we've been before we can fully grasp where it is that we're going. And this confrontation with our reflection is what God uses us, uses to help us step into his reflection because that's what we're called to carry and possess. You and I are to carry his image and his likeness and his reflection. And maybe this morning, this is where you're at right now. Maybe you feel like the mirror is being held up and is shining back the contents of your own soul. Maybe what's happening round about you, maybe the conditions of life, maybe the conversations are repeating the same thing and you feel like you're in that place where God is just holding up the mirror and reflecting back the image of who you are. Well, take heart because actually this is a safe place to be if God is in the process. 
He transforms and he changes. He confronts and he calls out, but he does it with respect for our dignity. He clears the scenes. He vindicates. He silences the voices. He hushes the accusations. He creates safe spaces for transformational encounters with his heart. So if you're in that place, be encouraged. God calls out your lifestyle in order to change your style of living. And the very fact that he's interacting with your life story means that he's about to do something significantly huge to transform your story in life. He's about to gift you with a deep and powerful revelation of himself that not only will it transform you, but much like this Samaritan woman, it will transform those round about you. He's about to gift you a revelation of himself that is yours to carry for his purpose. And you know, I think the woman at the well speaks to where we are at as a church right now. God has spoken powerfully and envisioned us. We are to sing out of our prophetic expectation instead of our present experience. We are to walk the church into its fullest potential. He has revealed to us that this is to be a season of growth. We are to increase in welcome increase in capacity, in vulnerability, in resources, in reach, and in strength. He's going to completely change the shape of our church and who we are in this call to let our vision shape our voice and to sing as a call to connect our heart to what he's doing and what he's asking us to be. And God has revealed to us the punchline. He's shown us the conclusion that he has for us. He's shown us his heart and the contents of his heart for this house. But now he is shaping us into the shape of the heart revelation that he has for us. He's dialoguing with the soul of the church. He's holding up the mirror. He's journeying us into who and what he wants us to be. Since Vision Day, we have seen this increase in intensity in his presence, this depth of ministry that he's doing within us. But what we've got to understand is that we need to move from seeking the manifestation of God to actually seeking and embracing the molding of God. It's not an easy thing to say because we all want to see the manifestation of God, but when you look through Scripture, no molding moment ever took place in the absence of God, did it? So when we step in and embrace his molding, we find who he is. We have to recognize and embrace that the revelation of his heart carries a call for the renovation of our heart. So we open up our hearts and our souls and in doing so, we open up the heart and soul of the church and we look for more than just an experience of his heart. We look to become the expression of his heart in this world. We seek more than visitations of God, wonderful as they are. We want to exist in, and we want to exist as the habitation of God. Not just to see him visit us, but to be a place where his glory rests and remains. We are right now at our own well as a church. And each time we need to dialogue with the one whose presence we find ourselves in. And we need to allow him to change the internal conditions of who we are so that he can begin to truly change the external conditions round about us. He's calling us to have an impact on our city. 
and on our nation. That's not a purpose that is reserved just for us. We're not that arrogant. God is moving in all these churches across the city and we all have a part to play. But the only way that we can have an impact on the conditions around us is if we open up who we are and move beyond seeking manifestations to seeking molding. God, mold us. Shape us. Give us the revelation of your heart because we long for it. But we're not going to be people that keep coming and saying, and we want another revelation and another and another. We want to see the revelation of his heart and journey into what he has revealed. Become what he has revealed. Be shaped by his revelation. Let us never be a place that is associated with just hot air. But let's instead seek the revelation of his heart and with all that we've got, open up to be molded and shaped by that. God, we invite you, renovate our heart. Renovate the soul of our church. Stretch the tent peg. Lengthen the cords. Pull out the curtains. Renovate us. Change us. Make us what you are calling us to be. That we can host your glory. Church, this is a shaping time. This is a molding time. This is a significant time. And the only way that we can see this move from just being a season that we're in to being the definition of who we are is if we come vulnerable, knowing that his presence is safe. Saying, okay, God, hold up the mirror. There's work to be done. We want to carry this revelation. We want to be this revelation. So structure us. Chop stuff off. Put things in place. Mold us. This message isn't one of those messages like we've had so far where it kind of lands on something to do or some kind of clear call of response. But I think in the midst of this journey, God speaks something quite important. Heart revelation equals heart renovation. And there's a line in the sand that the only way we can cross it is when we open up the soul and we choose to come not looking to bump into him here every week. But when we find ourselves in his presence, we invite him to dialogue with the soul of the church and with the soul of each one of us that from one degree of glory to the next we can ever be changed into his likeness and into his image. Would you stand with me?